All right. Well, praise God that we got two different podiums, a normal size and a max size podium, so y'all can see me. <laughs> uh, so um, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll get started. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your love for us, <clears throat> your kindness to us in um, just loving us so much to grant us mercy and grace um, that while we were still your enemies, you loved us um, so much to die for us. Not many of us would die for an enemy, but you did that for us. I pray that you would um, turn our hearts um, for those, especially in here, who, who do not have not turned to trust you, that you would turn our hearts today, um, that we would um, not have deaf ears nor blind eyes today, but that you would open our eyes um, and open our ears, that you would circumcise our hearts so that we would come to truly trust you more. Um, I pray for those of us in here who have put our trust in you, but we we still um, are flawed. We are still um, sinners, even um, after trusting in you. And so I pray that you just conform us even more um, to the likeness of your own self, Lord. Um, thank you for all these blessings that you've showered on us, and I pray that you would uh, just be glorified in the preaching of your word this morning. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, heroes abound in our culture. Uh, we love Marvel movies. We love all the DC movies. We love Star Wars and spy movies. I, I was looking it up, and these are like the biggest grossing movies um, of all time is these movies um, with these big action stars um, and these heroes. And more and more so, we love heroes or protagonists that are morally flawed, that are morally flawed. We like them, I think, because we are, oh yeah, sorry, let me, let me stop for a second. If you need a Bible, we got Bibles in the back. Um, just raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'll be uh, reading those today, so you will need one. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we like these heroes that are morally flawed because we see ourselves in them, right? I'm morally flawed, um, and if they are too, why can't I be a hero like them? Um, you don't need to be perfect to be a hero in these stories, um, so why can't, you know, me, just like Iron Man, just like uh, Black Panther, why can't I save the world just like them? Uh, if I can't save the, save the world, maybe I'm not interested in saving the whole world, but maybe, you know, I can at least save myself. Maybe I can be my own hero, because nobody's perfect, but all I need to do is get better at being my best self. My best self is the one that is most acceptable to me and the world around me. So all I need to do is fill in the blank. But what does the Bible actually say about what will actually make me my best self? What does the Bible say about how that can happen? What does the Bible say about how, uh, or sorry, who can actually help me? And what does the Bible say about why I'm not my best self yet? So uh, the title of today's sermon is uh, what does the Bible teach about salvation? So um, our main text today will be the Bible. Um, we'll specifically be looking at a few passages. 
um, namely Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 12. But like I said, uh, we're looking at how, or what does the Bible say about how I can actually achieve this thing? What, what does the Bible say about salvation? So I want to start from the very beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 1. In the first three days in which God was creating the world, he was forming it. In the subsequent three days, he was filling that world. Um, and at the end of each day, of these six days that he was making this world, forming and filling it, he noticed and he remarked that it was good. And on the seventh day, he rested. But as we get to Genesis 2, he gives us a little bit more detail um, about his creation of humanity, right? So on the sixth day, remember in Genesis 1, he created humanity, male and female, and this was good. Um, and he gave them the jobs of ruling over creation, subduing it, um, and multiplying and filling this world. But Genesis 2 zooms in on this story of how uh, humanity was made. And so it says in Genesis chapter 2 that uh, God had planted a garden in this place, Eden. And in this place, he formed the first human being um, out of clay. He breathed life into this human. And this human is looking for a partner to help him with subduing creation, ruling over it, um, and multiplying. But there is nothing in the world um, that would help him to do this job adequately. And so God saw this, and he saw that it, for the first time, something was not good. And so the man, the first human, needed deliverance from this status of being not good. The world was not good at this point, and the man needed deliverance from this. And so he uh, put the man to sleep, and it says that he created um, the second human from that man. And in that second human, woman the man was able to find deliverance from the status of being not good. That um, now he could actually do, humanity could actually do what God had designed them to do, to rule the earth, to subdue it, and to be fruitful and multiply um, on the earth. And so man experienced deliverance from um, the status of not being good. And so in this garden, it was an abundant, beautiful garden, all of the plants, food, water that humanity needed. They had community and family. They had a, a vulnerable relationship. It says that they were naked and not ashamed. Talk about vulnerability. Um, and they shared this power to rule over creation and subdue it. Um, and they lived according to God's wisdom. They had authority over this world as being God's representatives to rule over creation and subdue it. And they had safety and security in this place. As a man was happy, woman was happy. And so um, the first thing, if you know the story, that happens immediately after the promise and the blessing of this garden uh, in which they're safe is um, the woman is first tempted. And man, just being in so much trust and you know thanksgiving for this deliverance um, from being alone, he blindly also is tempted um, into doing the one thing that God told them not to do, and that was to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowing, uh, knowing good and evil. And so because of that, we see the, all those blessings um, of the order and goodness of the garden begin to dissolve as they do the one thing God commanded them not to do, um, that being that no longer do they get the blessing of abundant food and water. No longer do they have the comfort of 
uh, vulnerability um, and shared power. It says that they, at that point, recognized after they sinned that they were naked and they became ashamed. They hid themselves from each other. A part of the curse in Genesis 3 says that they were actually fighting for power over one another. So this shared authority, this shared job, um, it fell apart in front of them. That authority over the world, they had to fight for it. And that safety and security was gone. And this is the world that we know. Vulnerability is something that's actually despised a lot of times. Um, safety and security is hard to find. Abundant food and water, right? We know that the world is suffering from crisis um, in those terms. Community and families are broken. Um, and we don't live according to God's wisdom. And so with that curse that came from the first sin and um, really the, the way that we are now as, as humans, um, being sinful, being broken, our goal, our desire is to go back and find this blessing, this garden of Eden once again, to go back to that place of safety and security, even if it's by our own means, creating our own gardens based on our own wisdom. And so uh, a little bit after this, Adam and Eve, they have children. And what we see is that one sin turns into many sins that creates systems of sin that perpetuate sin in this world. And so we have broken systems. We have broken people that continue this pattern and this cycle of sin. The world gets so broken that uh, God looks at the world just six chapters later in the story, and he mourns because the world is filled with violence, that all people in this, in this world, which God created and blessed, were filled with violence. There was one, only one person left in the world um, who was actually truly seen as righteous by God, and his name was Noah. And so God decided that he was going to deliver Noah and deliver humanity through Noah and his family. And so God floods the world. God floods the world, but he saves Noah and his family. And Noah's stoked that this happens. After the world or the floods subside, he goes and he leaves the ark which he built to save him and his family from the flood. And the first thing that he does is he plants a garden. And it seems like good news, right? He plants a garden, and the first thing that he does in planting this garden is he, he grows a vineyard, and he makes great wine. But this great wine, he fills it, he gorges himself with this wine, and he becomes drunk. And his drunkenness, uh, his own son is tempted to go and to betray his father, to humiliate his father. And because his son, Noah's son, decides to humiliate and betray his father, this leads to brokenness in the family. So that deliverance that Noah had thought that he found in this new garden, um, when he decided to just really do things his own way, it led to further brokenness. So even though there was this one righteous man who thought that he was delivering the world, it continued to perpetuate this brokenness. <clears throat> Years later, uh, God... Uh, raises up one man. He makes a plan through man Abraham to be a blessing to the world. So maybe maybe this guy and his family 
can be a deliverer for the, wor uh, for the world from this brokenness, from this cycle of sin. And so God blesses Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless your name and make you famous in the world, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. He doesn't quite do that. He fails in, in several ways. Um, but he does have children. And generations later, uh, this family of Abraham becomes the nation of Israel. And due to a famine throughout the world, <clears throat> the only safe place is this garden-like place, Egypt. Egypt is the one safe, secure place in the whole world um, in the midst of this famine that's plaguing the whole world. And so Abraham, uh, Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, move down to Egypt, and they find safety and security there. Maybe this will be the garden that they're looking for in Egypt. But we learn Egypt is not the safe place that they had hoped it would be. Um, years and years, uh, centuries, in fact, um, of the Israelites living in Egypt, they began to actually be enslaved by the Egyptian people. But God, in his grace, ra uh, raised up Moses to deliver the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. This is a great thing. And they leave this place, Egypt, in which they were enslaved and punished, and actually their uh, children were being killed in the masses. They leave this place, um, and they move into the wilderness. And the first thing that they begin to do is they begin to doubt this deliverer. <clears throat> they begin to look at God and say, why, or look at Moses, really, and say, why did you curse us by bringing us out in the desert to, di to die? Right? You, we had so many good things in Egypt. We had food, we had water, we had great cucumbers and melons and all these kinds of things. And now we're in the wilderness and we're going to just die here. Why did you do this? They thought that food was going to be this Eden place just because they had food in this place, let alone the fact that their children were being killed by the Egyptians, deceived by themselves. And so uh, years and years later, uh, the Israelites, uh, they actually experienced the blessing in which God promised to their forefather Abraham, and they're brought to the promised land. And this is great. But uh, as uh, judges, these tribal leaders are raised up among the Israelites in the promised land, again and again you hear throughout the book of Judges that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That this place, right, the nation, or rather the land of Canaan that became, became the land of Israel, that was supposed to, again, be this garden ideal, everybody goes and follows the pattern of Adam and Eve in eating the fruit of knowing good and evil, um, doing what's right in their own eyes. And they thought that this would deliver them, but it plagues them over and over. Uh, it leads them to fall into the hands of their enemies over and over and over. And so God makes a new plan. Uh, the Israelites, they want a king. And so God says, I'm going to use your desire for a king to bless you. The first king of Israel was not so good. But the second king, we learn he's actually a man after God's own heart. Uh, his name is David. And so we think maybe David will be that deliverer that we've been waiting for this whole time. Maybe he'll deliver Israel. Maybe he'll bring things right. Uh, to the world, but we learn that he, too, is trying to make his own garden 
in his own image. He, uh, he wants to have that vulnerability that Adam and Eve had, but he decides to do it by taking this woman who, belong, or who was married to another man, and, she, and he kills that man in order to have her for himself. This garden ideal is not ideal. Maybe for David it is, but David soon realizes, no, this is not exactly what we need. His own son, uh, he's blessed. We're talking about Solomon now. Solomon is blessed to be the wisest man in the world. He's given wealth, and he makes alliances with the whole world. And this seems good, but the way that he makes these alliances, the way that, ways that he gains this wealth is through all these 700 marriages that he, um, that he has with women from around the world. And Solomon thinks this will provide safety and security. This will provide blessing to the world. It does not. After this, uh, the, the kingdom of Israel is suffering. And the kingdom is placed in the hands of Solomon's son, and he very quickly loses control of the kingdom, and the kingdom is divided in half. That uh, the kingdom becomes the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And all these kings of the northern kingdom are wicked. And many of the kings, even of the southern kingdom, um, are wicked as well. Um, they become people pleasers, just doing what the people want them to do. They be, uh, become religiously confused and religiously confusing. They forget about the God who delivered their ancestors from Egypt, and they just begin inventing their own sort of religion, going back to worshiping golden calves, worshiping idols. And they, uh, in, in place of actually turning from what they know God wants them to do, they just offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. They say, or they apologize instead of actually changing their ways. And this causes the nation of Israel um, to go into exile for 70 years because their hearts have so turned away from the God that delivered them that they have completely turned to their own ways. And we have basically an anti-garden that the Israelites live in, this place that's completely the opposite of what the garden was supposed to be. And so they're sent into exile by the Babylonians, which God appointed, and they're in exile for 70 years. And in these 70 years, we hope, we expect, and we believe maybe they learned their lesson. But uh, they, uh, God appoints these men, Nehemiah and Ezra, to rebuild Jerusalem um, into, hopefully, again, this garden ideal. Um, and Ezra, he's in charge of rebuilding the temple and reinstituting God's law in the world, which God gave to Moses. And we think that this is good, but in the midst of these 400 years between um, Ezra and Nehemiah to, till the New Testament, we see that the people become so obsessed with following the law that they think the law itself is their deliverer, that their law can save them. How this relates to us. <laughs> we, too, are very similar to uh, all of these people. We're very similar to Adam in that we believe at times that a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend can save us. This is a good blessing that God gave us. And maybe if I just follow everything that this person do, uh, tells me to do, 
I'll be delivered. We may be like Noah in that we think that we're going to receive safety and security and blessing in wine and beer and alcohol. We may think that we're um, going to receive blessing and safety and security, that garden ideal, if we just gorge ourselves with food. That if we um, just do what's right in our own eyes, everything will be okay. That if I just engage in any sort of sexual practices that I want, that things will be okay for me and I'll be blessed. That if I'm just wise, um, wiser than everybody else, if I just get a lot of wealth for myself, if I make great friendships and alliances with those around me, then I'll be safe and I won't have to worry about anything. If I just be who everybody wants me to be, if I just worship the, um, the gods that those around me worship, then I'll be okay. If I just obey God, if I do everything right, then I'll be okay. But we learn from this story of the Bible, of the Old Testament, that none of those things can truly deliver. We need God, who created order out of chaos, to be our deliverer. Only God can do that. And so God himself becomes our deliverer by taking on human flesh, going through the exact things that we suffered through, being tempted in every way as we are tempted, living as a human being in this broken world that has turned itself so much away from God. He goes through all of this and he is put on trial by unrighteous people. God himself, who is the creator of all this world, he's put on trial by the people that he made, by people who think that they know him, people who think that they know what he expects of them, by people who are obsessed with political power, the, the Jewish people and the Roman people. He's put on trial by them, and he's convicted as guilty, even though he's completely innocent of all crimes, and he's killed for it. But him being killed is our deliverance. His death is our salvation. We are delivered by his death, that he took the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And this is a good thing, that he would love us so much to deliver us from the cycle of sin and death. And he rose from the grave. And he ascended into heaven to be the king that we needed, to actually guide us into the righteousness that we've been looking for, to guide us into the garden ideal that God had planned from the beginning. And this is the gospel. This is a good thing that God has done for us. And so I've told you a bunch of history. But how, how, what, where, where, where do I fit in this story? Why does this Bible matter to me? Uh, you can look over to Romans 8, 29 through 30. Write that down for yourself uh, if you're taking notes. Romans 8, 29 through 30. And this is going to be really pivotal text for us in understanding how we are involved in this story of salvation, God's story of salvation. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. It says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. <clears throat> and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So I just said a bunch of really religious sounding words 
that maybe you know the definitions to, that maybe you've heard them many times, and you're just like, okay, what does that mean? Um, for, so I'll start with foreknown. For those whom he foreknew. What does it mean to be foreknown? From the, this, if, this is what it means. From the beginning of the story, before Adam and Eve, God knew you. Um, and I'll, I'll get a little bit into nitty-gritty here. Uh, the original word for new, the, the word that's uh, the Greek word for, the, uh, for this, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, um, this word is uh, prognosko. Prognosko, and that kind of sounds similar, and this is actually where we get this word from, is prognosis, uh, a word that we use in medicine. Um, a prognosis, right, you uh, your doctor has the prognosis for your disease that you're suffering through. He knows what's going to happen to you based on the disease that you're suffering. So like a doctor knows the course of a disease or an ailment, God knows the course of the disease of sin that's in you and me. God foreknew these things. God has the prognosis of sin, and he knew the course of this world from the beginning. God foreknew your struggles and your needs. And as a parent knows when their child is learning to walk, they will also fall. He knew that we would fall as soon as we had the opportunity. God foreknew these things. But could you imagine how bad of a parent that, a parent that would be if he just was like, I know you're going to fall, and I'm going to watch you do that. Uh, that would be a terrible parent um, if he just never picked up his child, right? So God foreknew your struggles and your needs. And so that second really important religious word that we see here, um, he foreknew, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God planned, when we're saying predestined, God planned to fix our hearts. God made a plan because he knew, he foreknew us. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Remember, I talked about Moses earlier on. Moses said this way back in the beginning, um, the fifth book of the Bible. He says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that, this is important, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is the plan that God made from the beginning to circumcise, to cut our hearts. Like a doctor needs to sometimes cut in order to heal, so God needs to cut our hearts in order to heal our hearts. And I said before that we would be conformed to the image of his son. The way that he does that is by cutting our hearts so that we would um, love the Lord with all our heart and with all our soul. And we know that this is the character of his son. Uh, this is what it says, uh, to be conformed, uh, before I get to the word, to be conformed is to actually share the same inner identity and nature as something. We are sharing the same inner identity and nature of his son, Christ Jesus, um, and this is how he does it. This is how he circumcises hearts. This is how he turns our hearts. Isaiah 57, 15 says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. We're talking about God here. I dwell in the high and holy place and also 
with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. How is he going to do that? How does he indwell us? Well, it says in John chapter 16, Jesus says this to his disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit, God himself indwells believers so that their hearts would be conformed to the image of God's son to do what is contrite, to be humble, to actually love the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul. And so, Titus 3.5 says this, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, and this is the Holy Spirit's work in us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes what was dead in us and he regenerates us. He renews us so that we would be living in the life that God had designed for us from the beginning. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And this is uh, the God's good plan that he planned from the beginning. And so God foreknew these things. He predestined these things. This is his plan from the beginning. And how does he actually do it? How does he actually do it? Well, going back again to Romans chapter 29, uh, or sorry, chapter 8, verses 29, 30. Uh, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. He called us. Um, and so this is what it says. Uh, we have this gospel call, this invitation into the plan that God had predestined from the beginning. Um, this is the gospel call that actually Jesus lays out for his disciples, all who would follow him. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so do these two things. Repent, turn away from sin and death and turn to me. So repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news that I am the only deliverer that God predestined, that God foreknew the plan from the beginning, that uh, I am the only deliverer and nothing else, no wine, no uh, woman, no nothing. Nothing in this world can deliver you. I am the only thing can do, that can do that. Believe that thing. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that invitation? Well, we RSVP. Matthew 520, uh, immediately following uh, where, where Jesus says, follow me. He says, uh, it says what the actual disciples, uh, who he was telling to follow him, what they should do uh, and what they actually did with this invitation. Immediately they left their nets because they were fishermen and they followed him. They left what was supposedly right their security in order to follow Jesus. This is how we RSVP. And the apostle Paul, follower of Jesus, who thought he was going to be delivered by killing Christians and God changed his heart. In Romans chapter 10, it says, uh, he tells us in more explicit detail about how to do this. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We must confess. We must believe that God raised Christ from 
the dead. We must believe and confess these things if we are to be saved. We must respond. We can't just simply hear and hear and hear and go to church and go to church and go to church and think that that saves us. We must believe. We must confess. And so, uh, going back to our verse, it says that those whom he uh, called, he also justified. What does justified mean? What does justified mean? Um, he declared us righteous. That's what it means to be justified. He declares us righteous. Uh, so, uh, again, Paul goes into detail about what it means to be declared righteous. Uh, Romans 1.17, the righteous of God is revealed from faith for faith, and as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So what it means to be righteous is not to just be a very good person, not just just be a very kind person, not to just do what everybody expects you to do and be a people pleaser, but what it means to be righteous, you know, ignoring what everybody thinks, right, what, what social media and all those kinds of things are telling me is what makes me righteous. What makes me righteous is faith in this deliverer, faith in this deliverer, that alone, and even for the religious person in here, right? And, and we all get caught up in this mix of believing that the law will justify us, that if I just do all of these things, that I'll be good, that God will love me if I just do what he wants me to do, if I just obey him perfectly, but that's not it. The law came after faith. And so, uh, Romans 3.28, it says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. From faith apart from the works of law. Faith does not justify, or sorry, faith justifies you. Works of law does not justify you. And so, not only are we, is our justification mean that we're declared righteous, but our justification also means that we are reconciled to God. Uh, it says uh, in Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When we were kicked out of the garden because we were doing things our own way, and we were um, exiled from security and safety and vulnerability that we experienced in that garden, Adam and Eve, <clears throat> we became enemies of God, that we were separated from God, that there was this break in relationship, and for our own good to be protected from God's own glory and God's own holiness, God separated us from himself, making the plan from, uh, from the beginning that he would reunite himself with us. And so because we are justified, because we are made right with God, we're able to be re, uh, reunified, reconciled with our God. And this is what it means to be justified. And not only are we justified, that we're declared righteous, not only are we reconciled, but it says that we are also sanctified. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a definition of what it means to be sanctified, how God sanctifies us. Uh, Romans 6, verses 11 through 13 says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you do that? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. 
don't present your members, don't present your body to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, your body to God as an instrument for righteousness. What it means to be sanctified is moving away from my body existing to serve myself, my body being uh, purely existing to serve my pleasures, to my body being set apart for the purpose of actually serving God. That's what it means to be sanctified. And this is not just instantly I'm transported from here to here. It's a process. It's a walk. It's a thing that we have to go through, and it's a process of being sanctified, and it's a thing that God does in our hearts. God sanctifies us. And so lastly, what God does is he justifies us, and so those whom he also justified, he also glorified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? Um, well, firstly, it means to receive honor. To be glorified is to receive honor. Uh, it says in Psalm 8, talking about how God made us in the beginning, how we were glorified from the beginning, how humanity was glorified. Uh, it says this in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. So how did you crown them with glory and honor? Well, you made them rulers over the works of your hands, and you put everything under their feet. Our glory is in the job which God gave to us from the beginning to rule over this world and subdue creation. That is our glory. That is an amazing thing that we were made in God's image to be his representatives. This is a good thing. And this is our glory as humanities, as the pinnacle, as God's masterpiece um, in creation. Not only this, but Jesus teaches us a little bit more about what our glory is. Not only in our individual occupation as humans, uh, but John 17, 22, this is the high priestly prayer, the prayer that Jesus makes to the Father. He says, uh, he says to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given them, talking about his disciples. So this is the glory, that they may be one, even as we are one. The glory of God is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. They're unified in purpose. They have, uh, they all work together for this unified purpose. And this is the glory which God has given to humanity um, in uh, being filled with his spirit that we would be united. This is the thing that which God does to glorify us is by making us one, making us unified even as God is one, that we would be unified. So we know our history. We know our own story and how we're part of that history. So what do we do as our story, as the church? Well, God calls us to be a living sacrifice. So how do I live like a saved person? How do we live like a saved people? We become a living sacrifice. So open with me to uh, Romans chapter 12. And this is where we'll end is in Romans chapter 12. How do we live like saved people? says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everybody understands that, so I think we're good. Right? How do you do that? How do you present your body as a living sacrifice? Well, I got two points here um, on how you can do that. It's by blessing the body, blessing the body, and secondly, by blessing the block, blessing the world. So uh, looking down, skipping a couple verses ahead to, chapter, uh, to verse 6, it talks about how to bless the body. Uh, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So God has gifted us with many different gifts. Um, and he tells us about some of what those gifts are. Uh, some of those gifts include, verse, uh, yeah, continue verse 6, um, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. So prophecy, we'll maybe do another sermon on that in the future. Um, yeah, prophecy. If service, then in serving. If your gift is serving, then serve. Um, if you're a teacher, then teach. If you're an exhorter, then exhort. If you're a contributor, right, if you've got money, then contribute. Be generous. The one who leads, lead with zeal, and the one who uh, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we bless the body by doing these things in the body for one another. Um, just, right, as one body, as unified, this is our glory, is in serving one another. This is how we're glorified. This is how God's body, or Christ's body, is glorified. Uh, and so we'll skip again a, a couple verses ahead to verse 9. Um, <clears throat> a second way that we can bless the body is letting love be genuine. Our love for one, how do we let our love be genuine? Well, he says, abhor what's evil, hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly and sisterly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I can think of a million ways that we can apply that in this church. We need, I'll say this at least, that we need to be patient with one another. Even though we're, we're, we are in this already state of being already justified and we are being sanctified, a way that we are being sanctified is by being patient with one another in tribulation because we are still people, we are still human, and sin still exists until Jesus comes back. And so we're going to sin against one another. We need to be patient with one another. And this is how God is glorified in our body, right? We're, we have our differences, but we are a body, right? Paul says, right, the eye can't do the job of the toe, right? Some of y'all need to be toes, some of y'all need to be eyes. Right? We got to agree with each other. We got to work together. Um, but that means having our differences and our different jobs um, and having our different ways of doing things. We need to um, actually glorify God in our differences, in our different purposes. Um, we need to be patient with one another. Uh, we can't be slothful. We, we have to be fervent in spirit. We have to rejoice in this hope, right? If we were just all down all the time about sin existing in the world and the brokenness of gun violence that exists in this neighborhood. If we were just consumed with sorrow, right? Where, where's the hope in that? Why, why does anybody want to be a part of that message, right? Why do I even want to be just consumed with just despair? I don't, right? We have a hope, and that is 
given in Jesus Christ that we are saved and that God's gospel is for all people and that God's purpose in the world is to bring his kingdom here until he returns. These are good things to be hopeful about. Let's be hopeful people. Let's be persistent in having hope and be constant in prayer because our hope is not manifested. Our hope does not exist. Our, our reality of being the kingdom and being the body does not ex, uh, happen on our own, right? We can't just be a bunch of people who know about the Bible and know about God's will, but just don't really care about God being in the process. God has to be in the process. And so we need to be constant in prayer. God's um, work needs to be done by God. We've learned our lesson from the Old Testament that doing it on our own does not work. And we're just going to create um, some garden ideal that looks way wrong. We need God's work in this body. So we need to bless the body. We also need to bless the block. So uh, in verse 14, we talked a little bit about this. Um, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Well, the block is not persecuting you. But uh, it, Paul is talking about the world here. Ta Paul is talking about um, the Romans. He's talking about the Jewish um, people who have not converted to Christianity and who persecute them. And he says, instead of <clears throat> cursing them, bless them. Bless the block. Bless the world around you. Uh, well, how do you do that? And Paul is very clear. He doesn't just leave us by ourselves. He tells us how to do these things. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And I see our body doing that, right? When our neighbors um, get jobs, we like ring that bell with them and we're so excited that they get that bell. I mean, get that job. That's amazing. But we also mourn when a member of our community dies to gun violence. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be haughty. It's a weird word. Uh, but don't be proud. Right? Associate with the lowly. Right? Be a part of uh, coffee and convos. Um, be a part of right what Michael was just talking about a minute ago, these PSA teams. Right? <clears throat> this community suffers um, from many, many things. Um, and if you've been to Coffee and Convo, I mean, you, you see people who are walking um, to the methadone clinic, people who are um, struggling, struggling through uh, drug addiction and homelessness. Um, you see people who are, are, are this lowly that we're talking about. And God calls us, or Paul calls us, to let love, or sorry, to bless them by preaching this message to them and being with them in the midst of the, the trials that they're facing. Um, and not only just doing that by our own works, but doing that by blessing them with the best news that exists, the, the good news, the gospel. So bless them. Um, never be wise in your own sight. That's a hard one for me. I, last time I was up here, I talked about how uh, my student told me, you know, you're not a humble man. That's, <laughs> I need to be humble. I think I'm wise in my own eyes all the time. I think I'm the wisest person ever sometimes. Um, but we need not to be wise in our own eyes, right? We need to um, be humble even in our knowledge right? Can't make up for, for height by wisdom, right? Uh, you you got to be <laughs> trusting the Lord. Um, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of others, right? That person's not my brother. That person's not in my church, so why do I need to treat them well, right? If I, you know, nobody's from my church knows about how I'm interacting with this person, um, 
you know, I, I, I have more than welcome, right? This person is not a believer. I can treat them however they're treating me, right? Um, but, you know, our parents taught us, God says the same thing, two wrongs don't make a right, right? Um, that we ought to repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And what's honorable? That's to do the job that God has given us, to subdue creation, rule over it as God's representatives. Do what's honorable. Um, and he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Never get your lick back, right? Never just get payback, right? God is the one who gets our lick back, right? God is the one who um, is our avenger, and he's the only one who's actually righteous. I'm not righteous, and so what right do I have to go and try and justify myself? No right, right? God is the only one who is just um, in getting vengeance. And so uh, last, last little bit here. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Well, I thought I was supposed to bless people, not put burning coals on their head. What it's meaning here is that their conscience, the conscience of a person who's mistreating you, they're going to see what a, like your good works that you have been blessed to do because God preordained you to do those good works. Um, and he's actually going to have his heart turned, maybe, by God because he's seen the good things that God is doing in you. I know that this is my story. Um, I, I tell my, I've told my students this a couple of times that when I was back in school, um, there was this new girl at school who uh, she, she came in and she did nothing to me um, except looked a little awkward because we were in the seventh grade. And I looked at her, and I just laughed at her. I thought it was so funny that she was new and awkward. And so I just laughed at her. And then she, at the end of class, she was like, hi, I'm Claire. And I just laughed and walked away. Um, and years later, I, I, I actually developed a relation, like a friendship with her. Um, and in the back of my mind, as she was just being friendly to me, friendly to me, friendly to me, um, I, it bore on my conscience, like the, the, the coals was like weighing on my head that I mistreated this girl and I never took ownership. I never apologized. I just mistreated her and I just left it there. And I was like, maybe, you know, maybe history will bury itself. Um, but years later, uh, we got to be seniors in high school and this was actually one of my closest friends. He actually, <clears throat> when Sydney and I got married, um, our, our wedding was held in her backyard, which is given. Um, and I, my, our senior year, I told her, um, I said, hey, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, I, I laughed at you in middle school, and I didn't even know you, and I just kind of, like, bullied you, um, and I'm sorry for that, and she did remember that. Um, she did honestly remember that, and um, not only my actions, but actions of other people who did the same thing. Um, she, she just, like, ate uh, her lunch during lunchtime in the bathroom by herself because she was so embarrassed to be new, but she, she blessed and she didn't curse. She didn't repay evil for evil. Um, instead, she just continued to just be a good friend through it all. And she forgave me. Um, but that, that was something that like <laughs> bore on my conscience for years and years and years, and it didn't happen immediately. And this is what we're called to do, is to bless and not to curse, to not uh, repay evil for evil, and not to avenge ourselves, because God is an avenger, and God is the one who changes hearts. Um, while we're unrighteous, um, all we are called to do is continue to bless. And so last thing that he says, um, 
is this. Uh, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, in conclusion, sin came into the world through the first man, Adam. And sin brought with it death. That one man's sin infected all people to produce sinful systems that cause all people to continue to sin, this cycle of sin. God gave his law to diagnose our condition, but the law couldn't save us. God came into the world to disrupt the cycle of sin. And Jesus Christ died without sin, taking the punishment of sin so that all who would trust in him would be saved from sin and death. And this salvation is irrevocable. Not only this, but God promised that he would return to redeem this world that has been stained with sin. All who trust in Jesus will join with him when he returns, but all who refuse to accept that invitation, all who refuse to RSVP will perish with death and sin. And so now we live in the tension of being saved, but awaiting his return by building his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We do this by being unified as a body, as his body, and we entreat the world to, the, to his kingdom by representing him in truth and love. We create, we, not only do we do these acts of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, not only do we do these acts of blessing the, uh, the neighborhood, blessing the block, blessing the world, but like sin, by its own action, developed into systems of sin that produce further sin, we now, because God has disrupted that cycle of sin, we have been justified, and so we do acts of righteousness so that we can produce systems of righteousness so that many people can be made righteous through the work that God is doing in their hearts by means of the good works that we're doing in the block blessing the block and blessing the world. And so we have those steps and we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity to bless this place, to bless the community um, of ARC. We have these opportunities through PSA teams um, to create systems of righteousness that people would be able to experience that garden idea, ideal, that kingdom, God's kingdom here on earth until Jesus returns. So with that being said, I'm gonna pray for us and then uh, we'll move back into a time of uh, praise and worship. So let's pray. God, thank you um, for all that you um, have done for us. I pray that you, your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven, and that we would be um, good representatives of your kingdom here on earth, um, and that we would be doing your will. I pray that you would bless um, us as your people to give us our daily needs um, as you are the one and only provider of all things that we need. I pray that you'd help us to desire your kingdom, to desire uh, your garden ideal rather than making gardens in our own likeness. Uh, I pray that you'd help us today to truly um, seek to do your will in this place. Um, conform us more to your image that we would be more and more like you. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.